0: Welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 46 with Joe Duffy, founder and CEO of Palumi. Pulumi is a platform that lets organizations manage infrastructure in the cloud of their choice using the coding platform of their choice. It's delivered as either a cloud service or a software. Joe's doing a fantastic job executing the Pulumi business plan. No point spoiling the show for you. Let's just dive right in. Joe, thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Hey, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: In one of your past interviews, you described Palumi as the name of the band, the name of the album, and the name of the song. We'll take more into the business later, but can you describe the current Pulumi product offerings, or maybe I should say superpowers?
1: Yes, uh, superpowers, yes. We just uh, launched that sort of as a new marketing theme uh, for ourselves. We started Pulumi because we really had this belief that every everybody should be able to leverage the full capabilities of the cloud. The cloud is kind of changing everything about how we build software. And yet we found that for most developers, the cloud was still sort of an afterthought, which harkens back to the days of, you know, virtual machines and end-tier applications. And on the other side, we, we found infrastructure teams that were frankly using not-so-great tools, and really we what, we what we thought with Pulumi is, hey, we can bring decades of programming language innovation and great tools and developer platforms and apply that to the cloud infrastructure space and really supercharge people's ability to use the cloud in how they build software while also breaking down some of these barriers between the different sides of the organization. So that's our focus. You know, open source was super important to us from day one. And we offer a SaaS for teams and enterprises that are adopting that open source.
0: You started at Microsoft in 2004 as a developer and went on to lead teams as a director of engineering. Looking back, what are some of the most fundamental changes in software development that you've seen over the years? Or what would utterly shock the 2004 Joe Duffy?
1: I think, you know, a lot has surprisingly remained the same, but the cloud really is the biggest change it changes everything about what we can do it's incredible when I look back I think at 2004 even you know and I was a developer before that but really you know back then like multi-core you know multiprocessor systems was wasn't even a thing and I spent actually a good deal in the 2000s working on that but the fact that every piece of software is a distributed application now every piece of software has you know access to infinitely scalable Compute and data and AI, machine learning, all, all of these capabilities are just an arm's length away. Whereas back then, I mean, we couldn't even dream of, of using anything close to those sorts of capabilities. And I, I think that's partially why we started Palumi. We're excited about supercharging people's applications with those
0: capabilities. From a business perspective, what would you say are some of the most important things that you learned in your 12 plus years at Microsoft, or what was most helpful to you to lead Pulumi?
1: It's definitely interesting. I did not plan on being there that long, I'll say. I I was about to do my own startup before going to to Microsoft, but I I actually went in part because I knew it was kind of like an extended MBA program for how to build an enterprise software company. I think some of the things just like seeing that sort of innovation at scale, seeing how you keep existing customers happy while still innovating and pushing the boundaries of of what your platform can do was really fascinating to see that at Microsoft and to see how how you can effectively innovate and do research while you're also doing product development. I think that's a really key thing to be able to do. I'll say it was a lesson learned over the years was it was really hard to figure out kind of like What business units actually made money? How did they make money? And how did the money get redistributed across the company? I spent a fair bit of time just reading the PL breakdowns and all the investor, you know, statements and trying to figure out, okay, what's actually making money? And the funny thing is it's not, there are a lot of loss leaders in a company like that. In fact, a lot of the open source investments, frankly, are sort of loss leaders for the real money makers. Used to be Windows. Now it's more, you know, Azure at Microsoft, Microsoft specifically, but you see the same pattern in you know, AWS, Google Cloud, other major players in the cloud, where a lot of the developer tools are really just there to get you to use and pay for their compute and storage. And, and that was an interesting thing to see from the inside at that scale.
0: So Pulumi is a, still a relatively new venture. The marketing team is probably trying to catch up with the momentum of product and engineering. What have been some of the challenges with messaging an extremely complex IT offering?
1: Yeah, marketing has been the one part of the company that is constantly changing. I think the product we've we've really had a very product led approach in everything we do. The community is everything for us, and so we lead with the community in everything we do. Even you know revenue, we only started focusing on last year, and we're finding that a very inbound oriented model with open source and SaaS being a great combination is is working well for us. And so the challenge really is how do we find the right people and that that is the people for which you know pulumi is a great solution and tell them the right story at the right time because you know you can't be constantly changing your your cloud platform every day so there are particular times we need to find people i think that's been a bit of a challenge you know in the early days this is probably very common we we tried to tell a more exciting sort of long-term story than the product truth and especially with open source i think you got to get the product truth story nailed first. And we got a little ahead of ourselves. Thankfully, we course corrected and we, after talking to a lot of end users, and frankly, I just got out there and went to as many conferences and talked to people as possible. That helped to hone that product truth messaging. And then over time, you know, I think you got to be patient, right? You'll get there for the longer term messaging. and, And it's important that people know what your DNA and what your company stands for. But even more important than that, on day one, Especially with open source is to understand what does this product do why do I care especially especially in the cloud space where it's like there's a new open source project every week if not more frequently than that and it's a lot to stay on top of
0: so that leads into my next question which is what are the most important value propositions for your customers today
1: yeah we started out thinking they were all technical and it turns out actually the cultural sort of human component is turning to be important for us I think the first is you know, our two main customers are practitioners, are infrastructure teams dealing with complexity. Modern cloud transformation is complex. I mentioned it's, it's a difficult space to navigate. There's so many options. Many of them don't work at scale. So Palumi for them helps them tame the complexity of modern cloud architectures, multi cloud architectures, modern, even single cloud, but increasingly multi cloud. So on the infrastructure team, that's the thing that's, that's really helping for developers you know increasingly developers want to use the cloud in their software and they don't want to go learn this completely foreign frankly not as good tool chain they'd rather just use the tools and techniques that they know and love and really start incorporating the cloud more into their software and so it's great for them and then if you look at the organization it really helps those two sets of people collaborate and work together. And that's the cultural part that's actually fueling most of the growth within our existing customers.
0: Do you segment the market at all? I heard a previous interview where you said at the time you weren't looking at vertical segmenting, but what about other ways like size of customers or how do you look at the market or break it down into something manageable or attackable?
1: Yeah, this is something we're learning over time. I think it's naturally segmenting itself. You know, we have an even spread of customers across SMB mid-market and enterprise customers. And, you know, the takeaway is, like, everybody's doing cloud. So everybody is a potential customer for us. Honestly, as a, as a you know, running a company, it kind of makes it difficult sometimes to prioritize, right? the The enterprise needs are not always aligned with the community needs. And so we've, I think we've done a good job of balancing those. For example, did Saml SSO identity integration very early on, which really was an enabler for us to add more enterprise value add features. So we did a lot of the foundational work that helped us to cater to this broad spectrum. I'll also say we see some verticals just naturally emerging, and again, they they sort of fall along the same lines of what I was mentioning earlier. You know, folks that are trying doing modern cloud initiatives in certain industries. There's more of that. So, like connected cars, for example, we've got a number of customers in the connected cars vertical that we didn't plan it that way, but it's a, a great you know partnership uh, with them. I'd say the number one thing though is we listen to our customers, we listen to our community, and we we try to let them take us where they need us to go.
0: Interacting with different size customers can be a challenge. Large customers expect one you know level of support or integration, and small customers another have you seen a big delta there or how do you manage the expectations for some of the larger customers who want more
1: there's definitely a very big difference in the engagement model and i think for us a key thing was community first for everything so we wanted to build a community nurture the community build a good a great community that has bodies our values and is a warm and welcoming place. And what that's led to is the community helps the community. And that helps actually, you know, I mentioned this inbound model where we're really focusing on, you know, open source plus SaaS. Our goal is that people can get up and running without needing a human to intervene. Like they don't actually need to talk to a salesperson. They can download the open source, they get up and running, you know, very quickly. People tell us the getting started flow is one of the easiest they've ever experienced, and we spent a lot of time making sure that was the case. We've got a community Slack where th- literally thousands of people are helping each other, and the whole team is encouraged to participate. And so that that takes care of sort of that inbound transactional sort of customer and actually frees up our internal folks on customer pre, you know, pre-sales engineering and post-sales engineering, along with our sales force, to really focus more on those higher you know uh, target accounts that, that do want a little bit more white glove service, might want to do a proof of concept, might want some more training and advice as part of the evaluation.
0: Let's talk a little bit about monetization. Previously, I guess you had a consumption-based model where you were pricing based on number of services, but you've moved to a per developer pricing model. I'm wondering, I'm actually curious, what, why didn't the consumption-based approach work?
1: We thought long and hard about this, and we started to design the system so that the open source and SaaS worked naturally with one another. So we have a very high attach rate for people who download the open source. Yet 80% of the people that do that actually use our SaaS, which is great. We have a free tier as well uh, for unlimited individual use. And so it's only when you get to a team that you start paying, or an enterprise, yeah, we invented this concept. You basically per, pay per project was the the previous model. What we found was a few things, and, and honestly, our hearts were in the right place. We really avoided per user for as long as we could because we want the whole organization to be able to use it freely. We don't want to stop, you know, growing within a group. You know, land and expand is important. What we found with per project is no two projects are alike, especially in a world of microservices. You know, it's very common to have mega projects sitting alongside thousands of little tiny projects. And we didn't want folks to feel like their their architectures were influenced by the pricing model. That felt like an anti-pattern to us. And that, that was sort of the, some of the feedback we got on that pricing model. So although we really did want it to be, hey, you pay for what you use. And the idea was, hey, if you're using more, you're seeing more success. And so you would expect to be paying more per user it was just easier for people to model out. Easier for people to kind of gauge, you know, how much they expect to be spending today versus tomorrow. And frankly, it's just a familiar model for anybody who's using a lot of other SaaS products that that our customers are using, whether that's PagerDuty or GitLab or GitHub or a lot of those those other sorts of systems. Now I'm not saying per user is perfect. It certainly isn't, but it's it's kind of the least bad that we've found to date.
0: Is most of the revenue from the SaaS platform or from the enterprise software? product it's actually a good
1: breakdown you know honestly it's it's about 50 50. i would say importantly our enterprise product is actually sold as a saas as an option so you can either run you can use the saas the online hosted version or you can use a self-host on-premise version of that and i i've been pleasantly surprised at how many people are willing to use the online saas because The cogs for us to deliver that service are just so much lower than having to do on prem, you know, support and installation and upgrades. And and I think my takeaway there is, you know, people now, even more so than even two or three or especially five years ago, they're used to depending on cloud services, whether that's, you know, GitHub or AWS itself, or pick your favorite SaaS. I, I think these organizations are getting more comfortable. With that sort of dependency, we also architected the system so that you don't need to share PII or you know cloud credentials or anything like that with our SaaS. And so when we go through a security review with one of these enterprises, they almost always walk away comfortable with where we've drawn those boundaries.
0: In your SaaS offering, would you say it's a single tenant design where each customer has their own sort of database and infrastructure, or is it a shared multi-tenant type of platform?
1: It's primarily multi-tenant. There are some resources that are, you know, per organization, things like we have a secrets management element to the product and each organization gets their own dedicated uh, hardware encryption key, for example. But for the most part, it's a multi-tenanted architecture, unless you use the self-host version, in which case it doesn't talk to any shared resources. It's, it can run entirely behind your firewall. It never phones home. So kind of have those two basic models.
0: Would you say that Palumi is open core?
1: I don't say that. And I, although some people tell me I shouldn't uh, be so pedantic on this point because it's a familiar model to people, but we don't hold things back from the open source platform. So the way I say it is the entire Palumi platform is open source. So you can use Palumi entirely offline and you're not, you're not missing out on any features that are in the platform itself. It's just that we have a SaaS product that you can choose to use. And that service itself is not open source. So it's almost like sort of like GitHub, right? So GitHub, you've got the Git tool. Git is 100% open source. And then you've got GitHub and GitHub is a SaaS that you can choose to use or not when you're using Git. Often you, it's the easiest way to go, but that thing is not actually open source. And so that's the model that we have adopted where the SaaS and, and importantly, the SaaS provides value. And that's the other thing, you know, where where open core I kind of have some qualms about where we're not artificially hampering your experience. The SaaS is there and you might pay for it because it actually provides significant value that's worth the money. It's not that you're forced to pay for it. And so that's I think a key distinction as well.
0: A uh, SaaS is, provides a lot of the features of a try by fly. So has open sourcing really materially helped the business?
1: Yes, I would say, especially in the space that we're in. And I think it would be different for different SaaS products. Like you, know, you look at a, a pager duty or, or something where everything is about the SaaS, you know, and, and there might be some ancillary tools around it. We're sort of the inverse of that. And I think it's table stakes for our space. You know, it, it, for developers to change the way they're writing code, for infrastructure teams to bet their whole organization on this. They need to have something where they have confidence that they're always in the driver's seat. And if if they need to take things and go, they they can do that. And so that was important to us. The community I mentioned, everything's about community for us. Because of the bet on real programming languages that we made, we allow people to share and reuse packages and and contribute to the ecosystem. We have tons of extensibility points. So if you, if you want to, you know, we've had community members bring up, you know, integration with, you know, Datadog, for example, great. You can do that sort of extension. If you want to integrate with Spinnaker, we just did a hackathon with Armory, you know, a couple of weeks ago, where if it wasn't open source, that vibrant ecosystem around it just would have never come to be. And we, we view that as essential, not only today for how we scale the business, but the, the long-term sustainability and differentiation of the company itself in large part, depends on that.
0: I was reading today about Google looking at different foundations where they might contribute Istio. And I'm wondering, when you have an open source product and you're also hosting it, it's sort of like enlightened despotism. You know, you're know, you controlling the roadmap and you're making the code open source, but that could always change. We've seen it change in some companies. What are your thoughts about the long-term? Does Palumi? ever move to a different governance model where the the roadmap almost becomes part of the community too?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, never say never. It's not something that we're looking at now. I would say if the community takes us in that direction and it's important to the community, we would definitely go in that direction. There are a few things. Like one, we are open in our planning process. We are open with our roadmaps. We, We are very community oriented in how we do all of that. And so I think because of that, our end users feel like they're part of that process, probably even more so than if it was in a foundation, frankly. Because a lot of times in foundations, there are special interests; they're just not as visible. You know, I think uh, Google definitely has some influence in the CNCF, and so it's not a bad thing, right? You're going to have sponsors, you're going to have people in the driver's seat, but I'm just I'm just saying it's not it's not like in one model you have no influence, and in the other model you do have a corporate influence. In all the models, you have that that level of influence. And I think really our community trusts us and our task now is to make sure we preserve that trust and nurture that trust. And But, you know, if there are strategic alignment in projects, you know, I think we would be more interested in partnering up with a foundation, but it's not something that's on the immediate radar.
0: So switching tracks a little bit, is most of the team in Seattle?
1: Yeah, we're about one third distributed as far as Europe, uh, East Coast. Sort of all over the world, but two thirds of the team is here in Seattle.
0: What are your thoughts about growing the team in the future?
1: The situation, you know, uh, at least at the time of the recording of with the uh, COVID situation, you know, we're all getting really good at working remote, and that foundation of starting with a third of the team being remote, I think, instilled a lot of the foundation we needed it to be successful in this new environment. I wouldn't say we're actually suffering too much from it, and I think if anything, it's it's actually helped. Our existing remote employees feel like they're more included in the daily dialogue. We've introduced a lot of new practices. So, in terms of growing the team in the future, I think we're going to be a lot more flexible in terms of. I don't know if we'll go 100% all remote. I, you know, I think some people have said you know they actually enjoy uh, working with people in person, but I think uh, we're definitely going to be a lot more remote going forward. And frankly, from here, most of our focus on growth is in the go-to-market side of things. You know, we're. We're a Series A-funded company. We're looking to, to that Series B in the not-too-distant future. And really, as we start to build more scalable and repeatable go-to-market uh, motions, we're going to scale up marketing, we're going to scale up sales. And so that's really the focus for us, at least for the next 18 months.
0: Are there partnerships right now that are critical to Palumi's business model?
1: I would say all partnerships have been essential. And we've done a fair bit of partnering and and that's an area that as we look to repeatability you know i think one of the challenges is sometimes i say hey we're really good at standing on the top of our own roof shouting into a megaphone in our own neighborhood like writing blog posts and tweeting to our existing followers and nurturing our existing users and helping them be successful you got to do that that's super important but what we're, what we're starting to get better at now is use, leveraging those partnerships to to, you know, get into adjacent channels where there's actually natural synergy between them. And I think, you know, that's, it's a tough thing to do. you got to nurture those relationships over the long term, but then some of them start to pay off. So the major cloud providers have been great partners with us. But we've intentionally built our system to integrate with a lot of other systems, whether those are source control systems, CICD systems, cloud infrastructure providers. And each one of those is a partnership opportunity. That we're just now starting to learn how to leverage to
0: basically grow top of the funnel
1: while also giving customers a more complete solution because each of these is just really one piece of the puzzle.
0: As you mentioned, we're recording this episode in April 2020 in the midst of this unprecedented global pandemic. And in this, is there a scenario where the new world that's emerging? will somehow be more fruitful for open-source startups?
1: You know, I think we're learning to flex a bunch of new muscles, especially when it comes to marketing, you know, more online, digital campaigns, you know, events were huge for us in the past. Um, And I think in open-source generally, you know, KubeCon, it's great to connect with your colleagues and learn what they're up to, see how you can incorporate their ideas into what you're doing you know devops days is a great conference that's very open source oriented that you know i personally went to almost a dozen of them last year those things aren't happening now they're all moving online and i'll say it's a little bit of a stark contrast it's not quite the same water cooler kind of you know informal conversation it's kind of hard to have these large group settings connecting over zoom where it's you know you know 30 people on a screen taking turns talking to each other So I think we're going to invent tools and we're going to invent new ways of basically moving that conversation online. And I think we're going to come out much better afterwards in that dimension. And that will benefit marketing, that will benefit open source, because open source really is about that community uh, dialogue. So, yeah, I I think we'll come out stronger afterwards.
0: Any advice for new entrepreneurs who are launching a business with open source as part of their business model?
1: I would say, you know, we thought long and hard about the monetization strategy. I think the temptation is to launch the open source project as soon as possible. And frankly, that is a good strategy. You always want to get out there sooner, um, you know, before, so you can start getting that sort of virtuous cycle of customer feedback and community building. But it's really tough to get in a situation where, You've launched a open source project. It's growing vibrantly, but you have no idea how to monetize. And I don't think for me, I wanted to build a product company. I didn't want to build a services organization. That's a very different playbook. It's a, you know, low, low margin, lots of people, you know, very expensive to get to scale. We really wanted to focus on, you know, selling product. And if you're going to do that, it requires really thinking deeply about where that boundary is between what's free and what's something people would pay for. And my advice is the thing that people pay for has to be something of value that they want to pay for. You can't trick somebody into paying for something. It really needs to be value. And that means you can't necessarily open source 100% of your value.
0: Joe, thank you so much for sharing all these insights today. And thanks for your time.
1: Thanks, Mike. I had a good time. I appreciate the chat.
0: Special thanks to the Pulumi team for wrangling Joe onto the podcast. Editing by Inez Satenji. Transcription by Maria Anchakovic, Cool graphics by Kamal Bhattacharji. Music from Broke for Free, Chris Abrisky and Lee Rosavir. The podcast Twitter handle is at FossPodcast. Next episode, we talk to Tracy Miranda, Director of Open Source Community at Cloudbeast, the companies behind Jenkins. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time, thanks for listening.